Welcome back to our teaching series entitled The Boys of Summer. In this lesson, we're going to look at the prophet Haggai. Haggai uh, has a little brief book. Uh, it, it's comprised of two chapters. Those two chapters give us uh, four sermons, four sermons that were delivered in the year 520 B.C. Uh, within about uh, a three-month period sometime from the end of August uh, to, the, uh, to the middle part of November in 520 B.C. Historically, let me set the stage for you before we look at the text, because all the minor prophets that we've seen before are what we call pre-exilic prophets. That is, they are prophets that spoke to Israel and later to Judah uh, before the nations uh, disappeared into exile. Uh, obviously, in 722 B.C., the 8th century, uh, Israel, you'll remember, the, the northern kingdom of ten tribes, they are uh, captured and carried away by the Assyrian Empire, uh, only to disappear into history. Uh, about 150 years later, in 586 B.C., Judah finally succumbs to the Babylonian Empire, and they are carried off into exile. The difference is, while Israel disappeared into history, assimilated into the Assyrian Empire, Judah remained distinct. They were allowed by God to maintain their identity. The remnant that God was going to use to eventually produce the Messiah and unfold this story of redemption required the survival of Judah. And so during the Babylonian captivity, uh, you'll remember under... Uh, under the prophets that we've already seen, the minor prophets, but also the major prophets, including uh, Ezekiel and, and, and Jeremiah, uh, we find those stories being told that they would be carried off, defeated by the Babylonians, but that they would someday return, that God would supernaturally provide a way out of the exile. It would be for a 70-year period, and then they would return to the land of promise that God had reserved for His people. Well, the Babylonian captivity has taken place. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet uh, among the people in Babylon. Daniel spoke and acted within the halls of power of the Babylonian Empire. He had the, uh, the ears and the attention of Nebuchadnezzar himself. As the Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire is defeated, they are conquered by a new superpower uh, called the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the Babylonians really were overthrown by a Persian king whose name was Cyrus. And Cyrus was followed on the throne of this new superpower by a man named Darius. Darius was supernaturally uh, used by God, inspired by the Spirit of God, to provide the supplies for, is, for Judah to be released from uh, from their obligations in in the empire and to return to their to their own land, the story is told basically in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are earlier in the Old Testament because they're considered to be part of what are called the historical books, but they're actually at the very end of the story of the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the, histor the historical development, three different waves of refugees returning to the promised land, 
and led by, by three different leaders. The first leader was a man by the name of Zerubbabel. He was the grandson of one of Judah's kings, and he brought the first wave of uh, exiles back into the land. And we'll see that Zerubbabel was responsible for, um, for rebuilding the temple. Uh, following that wave of exiles, there's a second wave that comes under the leadership of a man named Ezra. And then the third and final uh, major wave of, of returnees is led by Nehemiah. Um, Zerubbabel built the temple. Uh, Ezra came and restructured the government and helped uh, put into place the service of the temple. And then Nehemiah comes and becomes the governor of the of the area under the the Persian Empire and leads to the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. All of that happens at the end of the exile. And the last three books that we have in the Old Testament are the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are all called post-exilic prophets. The exile is, is wrapping up. The people are in waves returning to the promised land. And these prophets are, are no longer really speaking, uh, what we saw in all of the previous prophets. The, the overriding message was judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You've disobeyed. You've broken the covenant. Judgment is coming, but there's hope, but there will be a remnant. But my, my plans for you will not go uh, uncompleted. We, that was the message before the exile. Now, after the exile, there's a, a shift. And these last three prophets will have a different feel to them than the nine prophets that we've seen before in this collection that is called the Minor Prophets. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They both, uh, Haggai, was in the last part of 520 B.C. Zechariah speaks from about the end of 520 to about 518 B.C. We'll look at Zechariah next week. Haggai has a message, and he has a, a, a really significant impact on the story of the Old Testament because unlike the pre-exile prophets who often seem to go unheeded, unlistened to. They were frustrated in their ministries because, uh, because God's people would not respond to the Word of God. By the time the exile is over, uh, the people don't really remember how to walk with God. They don't know how to, to fulfill the covenant obligations. But they generally have a mindset that, that says, teach us what to do. And so Haggai is a prophet at a time when the people are anxious to hear what to do. And, and the little two-chapter book of Haggai is uh, really a, a priceless gem for us because in the big historical context, he's speaking to, to Judah about building the temple. Okay, I said the first wave of, of returning exiles came back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. They started work on the temple, but... Uh, but they really um, sort of lost their enthusiasm because what they did was uh, they encountered real opposition. The people, the Assyrians and, and the Babylonians, the remnants that had been left in the land, they had intermarried with the, the, the leftovers that, that Judah left behind, those that the Babylonians didn't deem worthy to even take into exile. The, the intermingling of those people groups had produced uh, uh, 
a group of people called Samaritans. Now, when the Jews returned, they were so uh, in awe of the fact that God allowed them in exile to maintain their identity, to maintain the purity of, of who they were as a nation of, of followers of Yahweh, that they had a real attitude about the Samaritans and wouldn't allow the Samaritans to be a part of, of anything that they were doing. As they began to rebuild the temple, uh, the Samaritans came and wanted to volunteer, and the Jews said, no, we, we don't want you. You can't help with this. You, you're, you're racially, you're morally, you're spiritually compromised. This is not for you. And this is where that sort of um, hostility between Jews and Samaritans began to develop that we see all the way into the New Testament uh, in the time of Jesus when Jews and Samaritans uh, hated each other and would have nothing to do with each other. In fact, Jews would go out of their way to avoid even uh, putting their feet on Samaritan territory. They didn't want Samaritan dust on their sandals. That rivalry in the New Testament started right after the exile with the Jews returning and sort of shunning those uh, who, were, who had been left in the land. As a result of that, the Samaritans began to harass the Jews and, and challenge them and, and cause them problems. And the constant opposition uh, as well as just the difficulty of life. I mean, they're trying to rebuild a temple in a city that has no walls, it has very few houses, uh, it's been raised to the ground basically, and it's been rubble for two generations, and they're trying to, to build it back up only to have the surrounding peoples um, attempt to, to daily undo whatever it is they were able to accomplish that day. The people were discouraged. They, they didn't think that, that this uh, return, they came back with such optimism and hope, and it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere. And Haggai is the prophet that God raises up to re-inspire, to re-enthuse his people to stay the course and to accomplish the great things that God had put in front of them. Haggai's two chapters in a historical context are about encouraging the people to build the temple, to get on with things. But it's timeless because what he's really saying is if you're going to do anything great for God, you need to reexamine your priorities. You're spinning your wheels. You're running on a hamster wheel in a cage because you're not making God a priority and he's withholding the blessings. He's withholding the success that he wants to give you, but he's waiting on you to cry out to him. It's a great little book. Let me read a couple of background verses from the book of Ezra, uh, just so that you can see uh, the story that, that, I've, that I've unfolded to you. Uh, let's see. In Ezra chapter 4, um, verses 4 and 5. It says, then the people who were already in the land, those who were in the promised land, this, these half-breeds, they discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build the temple. They also bribed officials to act, to act against them, to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, if we go over to the fifth chapter in Ezra, 
uh, he, he's going to give us uh, another little mention, uh, and, and Haggai shows up here. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were, who were in Jer- Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. It's a great story because unlike the prophets who were so often frustrated by a refusal to, to, to be heard, uh, Haggai had a great success as a ministry. And all we have are four really brief sermons that are just compiled in these, in, in these two chapters. And these sermons, uh, one in the first chapter, three uh, that make up the second chapter, and these sermons are, are clearly not the extent of Haggai's ministry, but just a sampling of the way that speaking with the authority of God, he encouraged the people to set their priorities right, to, 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 to get back involved. It's a timely lesson because it, it fits uh, the world in which we live where people are discouraged, they're, they're, they think that the church is, is, is losing the battle, that the culture is winning. And the message here is set your sights on the right things. Put your priorities in place. Seek after God, and He will give you the success that He's promised. And, 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 and the people responded, and the temple was built. Now, let's look at these, these two brief chapters of Haggai. And in the, in the first chapter, uh, I've called this point, be careful and consider. Because what the prophet is going to do is he's going to call the people's attention to stop and analyze, to self-inventory their spiritual walk and to see that the things that are causing them frustration, the things that seem to be working against them, uh, are really just the result of their abandonment of their pursuit of God as a priority. And the message of the prophet is, you reorder your priorities, and what you'll discover is God will reorder your results. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, and all the way through this little book, um, I mean, obviously 520 B.C. is much easier to pin down than the than Amos and Hosea, the, the prophets that were in the 8th century, you know, a couple of hundred years before. This is much closer to, um, uh, to the New Testament period, and, and, and so we see some real historical references uh, throughout this book that allow us to precisely say, as I said, these sermons were delivered between August and November in the year 520 B.C. Verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. He's gonna, he starts right off by saying, I want you to do a spiritual inventory because here's the lesson that that you've got to capture. Wrong priorities produce spiritual laziness. 
What had happened was, as they left Babylon, and particularly when Darius was king, they were given the resources to rebuild the temple. They had the wood, they had uh, they had all of the supplies that, that were needed to rebuild the temple. But when they got there and realized that life was tough and that building the temple was an uphill battle and, and things were hard, guess what they did? They took the supplies meant for the temple and they built themselves nice houses. This is what the prophet means when he says, he says, uh, you're living in paneled houses. In other words, these weren't stone. These weren't adobe mud. These were houses that had been built with the, res- with the physical resources meant for the temple. They were, by those standards, they were plush. The walls were paneled with the finest wood. How did political refugees get Get, get houses this nice because they filched the materials meant for the house of God. They had become spiritually lazy because of the difficulty of the day in which they lived. And, it, and the prophet says, it's because you have wrong priorities. You don't have time. In fact, that's the, that's the way he puts it. Apparently, this is what he was hearing from the people. They were, the word of the Lord came to the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your panel houses while this house lies in ruin? In other words, they were saying, you know, we're going to build the temple. It's, we're going to get to it one of these days. But, but you know, right now with the Samaritans and, and, and with no wall around the city, now's not the right time. It's a sign of wrong priorities when God says, this is what I want you to do. And I'm giving you all the resources to make it happen. And we sit back and go, yeah, but, you know, it's not a good time right now. We'll get to it eventually. Do you know what happens when your spiritual life is based on a we'll get to it eventually mindset? You do know that people who say, I'll get to following God, I'll I'll start following Jesus eventually, someday, at some point, after my kids are grown, after my job gets easier, after we sell the next house. It's always something. You know what the enemy is going to do? He's going to make sure that your life stays busy and occupied so that eventually never gets here. That's what Haggai starts by saying. You've said that you're going to do this eventually. There'll be a time, but now's not the right time. And yet you've taken what God meant for his house and you've built, you've had plenty of time to build nice houses for yourself. See, your priorities are wrong. Well, verse 6. After saying, think carefully about your ways, the prophet is going to help them by outlining uh, what those ways are. Verse 6, he says, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. It's an interesting sermon because Haggai says, let's take inventory. You you make clothes, you buy clothes, you get clothes, and yet they never seem to keep you warm at night. 
You go out and you plant seed and you harvest, but you never quite get a harvest that matches the expectation based on the work that you've put in. He says the worker takes his income, his salary, and he puts it in a purse that has holes in it. In other words, no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, there never seems to be enough to make ends meet. There never seems to be enough to go around. They always seem to be living on the edge of subsistence. Haggai's going to come back and say, do you think, do you think that your inability to get ahead is because God is letting you find out what it feels like to live life in your own power? What if we tried an experiment? What if you committed yourself to the Lord? What if you made the pursuit of God a priority? What if you put all of the the stewardship of your resources at His disposal and lived by God's priorities? What might happen there? I run into people all the time who say, you know, I don't have time to come to work, man. I am just working nonstop. I work seven days a week. I'm just trying to take care of my family. I can't give to the church because it's just all we can do to to, to get through the budget and and have enough to, to put food on the table to the end of the month. Haggai's question is a real question. Why don't you consider this thought experiment? Instead of killing yourself working seven days a week, instead of living paycheck to paycheck, what if you made a decision to trust God and put Him first as priority. See, Jesus had that, that, that odd little comment in Matthew chapter 6, right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says if you'll seek God first and His kingdom, all the stuff that, that are God's priority in this generation, if you'll seek Him first... He'll add these other things that you're trying so hard to get a hold of. He'll he'll give them to you. But it's a matter of priority. Well, you know, God God should... I'm a child of God. He should just supply me right now. Yeah, but see, from God's perspective, He wants your heart to have a passion, a hunger for Him. And so He's not... He's not punishing you, but you've decided to be responsible for your own life. You've decided to be responsible to pay your own bills. You've decided to be responsible to make ends meet and and to provide for yourself. So God sits back and he says, okay, when you figure out that you need me, then give me a holler. That's what Haggai is asking the people of Judah. You have turned your priorities upside down. And what you're discovering is the harder you work, the faster you run, the more you sweat, the less success you seem to have. Why? Because God's mad at you? No. Because you weren't made to pay your own bills. You weren't made to be responsible for the details of your life. You were made to be in fellowship with God and to trust that He provides lovingly for His children. 
Well, wrong priorities produce spiritual laziness. They produce emotional futility. But look at verse 8. God's going to explain this discontented life that they're living. He said now twice in verse 5 and then again in verse 7, he says, think carefully about your ways. He's saying, examine your ways. See if there's a connection between the way you're living your life and the frustration of the way you're living your life. See if there's a connection there because if the way you're living your life is only producing a frustration, uh, an incompleteness, a discontentedness, then mentally that should tell you I need to lead my life a different way. There must be a different way to do this that's better than what I'm doing. Verse 8, God says, Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, meaning the temple. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with your own house. Does that make God sound petty? Well, it might if we didn't understand what God was doing here. Does God need a temple? Is that what it is? He's mad because they haven't built him a temple? No, God doesn't need a temple. But guess what? The people of Judah, if they were going to succeed in being the people who carry the story of redemption all the way to the Messiah, if they're going to live up to the covenant, if they're going to be the nation through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed, if they're going to be who God created them and redeemed them and protected them and gifted them to be, if they're going to be that people, guess what they needed? They needed a temple where they could cry out to the presence of the God who loved them and who chose them and who provides for them. This is not some petty God saying, I'm not going to bless you in your house until you give me my house. This is a God saying, I'm not going to give you success in the wrong priorities because long term it's in your best interest to have the right priorities and the right priorities is you need to come find me and in that day that meant building a temple and making a place where they could seek god verse 10 he says so on your account the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops i have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and on all that your hands produce. God says, I have put a hold on your success. I've put a, a block on all your prosperity, not because he's mad at you, not because he, he's, he's, he, he's jealous that you haven't given him something or done something for him, but because he knows that what's best for you is to take your eyes off of those things. He's trying to make sure that the things that have occupied their attention do not give them satisfaction. Rolling Stones, the number one song of the 20th century in America. Rolling Stones, can't get no satisfaction. That is a, a, a song of secular uh, discontentment with the world. And yet, 
it could easily be the song of the people of Judah in Haggai's day because they were working plenty hard, but nothing ever seemed to work out for them. They couldn't get any satisfaction. Why? Because God was not willing to allow them to be satisfied by lesser things because He had something greater for them. Man, I cannot catch a break. God won't let me have a good job. I can't get a right paycheck. Every time I get a little bit of money, the car breaks down. God must be mad at me. No, God's not mad at you. In fact, God has great things in store for you, but He refuses to let you settle for satisfaction in a little in, in, in unimportant stuff. Your paycheck is not where you're meant to have, find satisfaction. Your job, your house, your car, those things are not meant to be what bring you peace. It is in finding the Lord. And guess what? Jesus tells us when we seek the Lord first, His kingdom, His priorities, His agenda, guess what? Then He throws those things in. But He wants to make sure our contentment is not in stuff, but it's in Him. Well... Look at, look at the closing verses of chapter 1 because this is, the only, um, uh, this is the only real sermon in Haggai where we're given uh, a clear picture of the response of the people. But this is why I think Haggai had a wonderful ministry because even though we have just a little taste of it, it's clear that unlike the minor prophets that have gone before who, who were often abused and ridiculed and, and, and persecuted, the people listened to Haggai and they responded. Uh, verse 12, then Zerubbabel, this is the governor, this was the leader of that first wave of refugees, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. They responded. They absolutely wanted to be taught. They wanted to learn how to have that contentment, how to find that satisfaction. And when God gave them a man who would teach the Word of God, they responded with reverence. When it says they feared the Lord, it means that they acknowledged that God was God and they were not. And they were ready to make the changes necessary because they wanted to have what God had for them. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. And get this. This is the message he delivered. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Can you imagine a people trying to rebuild a city, a temple, a culture, a government that had been utterly wiped out? just 70 years before. I mean, they are pioneers starting essentially from scratch. You know what they needed? They needed to hear what Joshua heard. When Joshua, after 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness because of a sin of, of, of a generation that God allowed to die off, when they finally cross over into the promised land, God comes to Joshua in the first chapter of that book and he says, Joshua, don't be afraid. Joshua, 
I'm here with you. Joshua, 40 years ago, the people ran away because they found out there were giants in the land. Well, guess what? There are still giants in the land, but I'm with you. Don't be afraid. These people coming out of Babylonian captivity hundreds of years later, they were starting at the same zero starting point that Joshua and the people were starting at when they first crossed the river and came face to face with a walled city called Jericho. They needed to hear God say, I'm with you. But all they needed to do to get that from God was for them to revere him, to fear him, to humble themselves and say, we want God's plan for us. That's the hope for our satisfaction. That's the promise for our success. That's the good plan for our future. And God heard those people as they humbled themselves, as they came back and said, we want God more than we want paneled houses, more than we want a successful harvest, more than we want anything else. We want God. And through the prophet, the Lord's messenger, God said, I am with you. Listen, we need to hear that. In 2020, we have to take this to heart two times where the Lord of Armies says, think carefully about your ways. We probably need to do some self-inventory in America in 2020. We need to ask if our discontent is in any way related to wrong priorities, to spiritual laziness, to emotional futility because we've, we've connected our satisfaction to the wrong things. And if we hear Jesus say, seek first God, the kingdom of heaven, and all the agenda of God, His priorities, seek that first, and then satisfaction in these other things comes along with it. If we find ourselves on our knees asking God to be real to us, I think in 2020 we're going to hear God whisper in our ears. I know it looks bad out on the streets. I know there's riots in the cities. I know buildings are burning. I know that there are people hiding in unjustified fear in their houses from some invisible predator that they think is stalking them in the streets. But I want you to know I'm with you in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of civil and social unrest, in the middle uh, of the rebellion of a nation that once knew God that has turned away and rejected Him, in, in, in the middle of a nation that, that applauds when renegades burn Bibles in the streets, we need to be on our knees saying, God, I'm ready to pursue you. There's no satisfaction for me in this world. There's nothing in this, in this country, in this nation, in this generation that can bring contentment. I want you, and I want you more than I want anything else. And God will say, I'm with you. I'm with you. And so, verse 14, the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God came in the midst of the people and he stirred them up. And they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. When they got right with God, when they adopted God's priorities, guess what they did? They reworked all their schedule to put God first. And the, the work on the temple that had started and stopped and started and stopped, it now started and it would not be stopped 
until this temple was built. Man, as much as I don't want to be Amos or Hosea or Jonah or Micah or Nahum, how cool would it be to be Haggai and to preach and to see the Spirit of God move among the people until they said nothing matters to us except what matters to God. Be careful and consider. Think about your ways. That's the story of the first chapter. But we're going to come to a second sermon at the start of the second chapter. I've called this sermon, Be Strong and Work. In the second chapter... We're gonna, we're gonna, and, and he, he, because he tells us the exact days that these happened, uh, that's how we know, uh, about August to November is, is kind of the, the time frame for these sermons. Uh, it, it's not that many days between each message that's recorded here. Chapter two, uh, verse one. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Now, this is an interesting way to start a sermon because they have now... Uh, they finished the work, the, they, they, they threw themselves into it with, with full uh, abandon, and, and they build the temple, and the prophet stands up, and I think he's responding to what he's hearing among the people. You see, what had happened was that first temple, the one that had been destroyed 70 years earlier by the Babylonians, that was called Solomon's Temple. The materials for that temple were collected by King David in really what was considered the golden era of Israel. David was not allowed because of his sin to actually build the temple, but God allowed David to collect the materials. He got the cedars of Lebanon. He got the finest materials, and he collected them from from all over. I mean, the ancient temple that that david collected the material for and solomon his son actually constructed we see the dedication ceremony uh in the early chapters of second chronicles uh where solomon offers a prayer and and god makes promises and and the 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 cloud of god's presence comes and fills up the temple uh that was the dedication of the temple listen that was almost one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world that temple was amazing i mean covered with gold trim the finest polished woods craftsmen from 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 all skill sets that that had hand carved different parts everything was fashioned by by the the best of the best in each uh professional field i mean it was it was a legendary building and when they got back after 70 years, what they realized is the Babylonians hadn't even left one brick on top of another. I mean, it was gone. It was rubble. And so they built the second temple. And that's what it's called, the second temple. But the problem was, even with the resources that they, that they were able to put, pull together, even with what the Persian government provided, um, it just, it just didn't match the other one. Now, most people in Jerusalem on that day, when it's time to dedicate the second temple, uh, we read this story in the, back in the book of Ezra. 
most of them celebrated because it's all they knew. But it said, it tells us in the book of Ezra that there were the old men, the ones old enough to have seen Solomon's temple before the exile. That would have been people who were 90, 100 years old. It says that at the dedication of the second temple, they wept because it just couldn't compare. It was a, a shadow of that first temple. Well, Haggai, in that context, hearing the talk of the people, even those who hadn't seen the last temple, they'd heard the stories, and the telling of that temple had not, uh, had not lost anything in the retelling over those generations. They were very painfully aware that this temple really didn't measure up to that temple, didn't have the handcrafted uh, amenities. It, it, it just didn't have the, the beauty of the, of the architecture and the design. And so there was, there was this, this response of, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. And so the prophet, speaking from God, acknowledges this feeling. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? God, through Haggai, is acknowledging what the people are feeling right now. This, this, this building that we just built, it's just, it's, it's really nothing compared to what we once had. <laughs> Verse 4. Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? That's what the people felt. Verse 4. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. He says, listen, I understand that you're frustrated, that, that you're, you're disappointed. You don't think that this measures up. But I want you to understand that it was never, whether it was Solomon's temple or whether it was the second temple, it was never about the building. Take heart. Be strong. Because the God who is with you, the God who will meet with you in this new temple is the same God who brought you out of Egypt. See, these people felt like they were starting over from scratch and, and they're like, you know, we got nothing to show for this. The, the building is not what it ought to be. We still don't have, we still don't have a city built. We still don't have walls. We're, we're essentially at, at, at ground zero. We're, we're starting at scratch. And God said, yeah, you are. But you remember your forefathers when they came out of Egypt and they were starting from scratch? They didn't have a place to go. They didn't have a home. They were nomads. And I gave them meat and bread and water in the desert. And I protected them supernaturally from their enemies. And I brought them into the promised land. And I gave them conquest over the, the nations that needed to be judged. You remember? They didn't have anything either. But I was enough. 
You don't have much now, but it doesn't matter because you have the same God that your forefathers had. Wow. Our temptation in 2020 is to say, you know, back in the 50s, everybody went to church. My grandparents... Everybody were everybody was churchgoers. In fact, if you didn't go to church, people looked at you funny because they wanted to know what was wrong with you. Because church was respected, pastors were seen as, as as leading citizens. There was no price to pay to go to church. You were encouraged to go to church. It was the normal thing. And look now, people look at us like we're idiots for going to church. You mean you give up a Sunday to go sit in church and listen to some guy drone on about ancient stuff that'll bore? you to tears really that's how you spend your day off and we hear that enough and all of a sudden we start to think you know christianity's not what it used to be you know i I don't know if church is going to survive in this country you know it, it seems like we're we're losing the battle well we've heard god speak twice in this little book the first time when when God's people rearrange their priorities to make Him the object of their pursuit, the focus of their energy, He whispered in their ears, I am with you. And just when they were tempted to be depressed and saddened because it looks like we're not having much success in this generation, He says, be strong! Because I'm the same God that you have, that all those who before you had, every miracle of the Old Testament, every miracle of the New Testament, every miracle of 2,000 years of church history, I am that God. And you are in the right moment in human history to see me act mighty for my name's sake. Get up. Be strong. Get back into the fight. Work. That's the word he uses. (laughs) He says, work. For I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. I love that. I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible. And all the way through the Old Testament, uh, what is translated in other translations as the Lord of hosts. That may be the more familiar term that, that you've heard. The Lord of hosts. It's really an old-fashioned way. A host was an army, a collection of soldiers. So the Lord of hosts really is is the the, the God of, of angel armies. But I love that this translation across the board takes that phrase, the Lord of hosts, and translates it, the God of armies. The Lord of armies. Yahweh of armies. I love that because host... Uh, doesn't have the punch in our generation. It, the, the word has lost a little bit of its, of its, of its oomph, of its power. I like being told I'm with you by Yahweh, the God of armies. We have nothing to fear. Before World War II, before the United States got into World War II, in his first inauguration, uh, it was Franklin Roosevelt, who made that famous statement, trying to bolster the courage of Americans with the Nazi threat on the horizon. He said, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. And that was a powerful speech, and, and, it, and, it, and it's entered into the psyche uh, of the American people. 
But I would say for a follower of Jesus, you know, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. As powerful as that is, I like this better. You have nothing to fear because the God of armies is with you. Man, we got to hold on to that. Every time you read the news, go find a verse that says the God of armies is with you. Every time you hear about another riot, every time another policeman is injured in the line of duty, every time there's another shooting at a school or, 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 or some public place, and, and, and we say that, that every time somebody criticizes the church as being irrelevant, you go back to the Old Testament and you find a verse that says the God of armies is with you. We need to recite that. We need to be reminded of it. These people felt like they really didn't have much going for them. They, the temple wasn't what it used to be. The city didn't have buildings for the most part. The, the walls were still broken down. I mean, they felt like they were really um, in a losing place. But they weren't once they realized that the God of armies was with them. So listen to what he has to say. This is a part of this second sermon. Verse 6. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Look at what he said. He starts this sermon by saying, how many of you remember the first temple? This one really doesn't measure up, does it? I mean, the prophet just acknowledges what the people are already thinking. But then when God comes into the conversation and he begins to speak, he says something extraordinary. I'm about to shake this generation. And when I show up in my presence, the glory of this building will far exceed anything that happened in that first one. Why? Because it was never about the building. It was always about the presence, the power, the glory of God in the middle of his people. He's telling them what he's telling us. Don't judge the cause of Christ by the visible limitations of our generation. Don't judge the church by those church buildings that are closing their doors because the people have abandoned them. Don't judge the church by the appearance that the culture is taking over and moving in another direction because God is going to do something among His people. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to rattle the earth and His presence is going to descend on His people and the glory that we see in our generation, I am convinced today more than I have ever been in the 40 years of ministry that I've been that I've been preaching the word of God, we're going to see the glory of God more ahead of us than anything we've ever seen behind. I think God's getting ready to shake some things. And I think he's waiting for a people to once again make him their absolute unrivaled priority and with those people it's not going to be about our buildings it's not going to be about 
our ministries. It's not going to be about uh, what the world thinks of us. I think God is going to show up and make himself known. Now, I know there's a there's an eschatological school of thought that says, you know, the world's just going to get worse and worse. It's just going to get worse and worse. It just, I mean, the Bible tells us the world's going to get worse and worse. Yes, it does. The Bible does tell us that. It tells us that eventually there's going to be an antichrist. Eventually, um, all that's going to happen. But you know what's missed in all of that? Is that God is still harvesting the victory of lost dead souls who are coming to life and he's doing it all through that season we may say i think the the return of jesus is right around the corner which means the coming of the antichrist is not too far down the road i i don't disagree with those statements I think that's probably accurate. I think Jesus is coming back soon. I think the Antichrist is on his way. But I also think that God has got some shaking to do before those things happen. And I am not willing to go dig a hole and, and hide in some, in, in, in some underground bunker because I've thrown up my hands and said the church is no more. The church is what it's always been, and it is the bride of Christ. It's being purified in these last days. That means God's up to something. He's going to do some shaking. There's going to be some rumbling going on, and I'm not going to be in a hole in the ground missing it. I want to be front row center because I want to see the God of armies show himself mighty. I've waited a generation it's my time. It's your time. In the words of Haggai, 2,500 years ago, they ring in our ears today like Haggai is speaking to us. The God of armies is our God, the God of the Red Sea, the God of the Mount of, of Sinai, the God of the Promised Land conquest, the God bringing His people out of exile this is our God. There's a third sermon. I've entitled this one, Be Pure and Win. It starts in verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Ask the priest for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. What's he talking about? This sermon is what is called the law of defilement. Basically, in the Old Testament, they understood that there were certain things that were considered unclean. And contact with those unclean things made whatever was in contact with it become unclean. And he says, he says, go to the priest and ask for a ruling. The priest supposedly knew the law. And he said, ask him this question. If, if you're carrying something in the fold of your, of, of your shirt, if you're carrying it home and it's consecrated, that is, it's clean, it's holy, and it touches something that's 
spoiled. What happens? Does the spoiled thing become clean or does the clean thing become spoiled? Well, we know how that works. I mean, what if you, you ever, you ever pull cheese out of your refrigerator and, and it's in a container and you open it up and you go, oh, it's got green stuff on it. You ever had that happen? Oh, green stuff on my cheese. Well, I'll just take this fresh cheese and I'll just put it on top of this cheese and I'll close the container and I'll stick it back in the refrigerator because the fresh cheese will bring the spoiled cheese back to freshness. No, no, we know intuitively that's not the way that works. What happens if you put the fresh cheese on top of the spoiled cheese? The decay is infectious. The fresh cheese is pretty soon, pretty quickly going to be spoiled cheese. Well, the point that, that he's making here is, uh, well, well let's, let's read ahead because I want you to see. He's, he's setting up this, this issue because he wants the people to understand about their work on the temple. Verse 15, he says, Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? Meaning what spiritual condition were you in before you started work on the temple? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. He's flashing them back to before the construction of the temple. He says, remember the spiritual condition you were in. You weren't following me. And so I let these things happen to you to give you a lack of contentment, a dissatisfaction with the things that you thought were most important. He's saying, I want you to remember that. I want you to think back to the way you were before you started following me. You experienced a dissatisfaction because your priorities were in the wrong place. Then he says this, verse 18. From this day on, see, he's had them flash back, but now today's the turning point. From this day on, think carefully, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, but from this day on I will bless you. Now, what he's saying is he's helping them analyze what he's doing among them. Think back. Before you reordered your priorities to follow me, you couldn't get satisfaction. Your harvests were always less than you hoped for. I mean, I love that image. The worker was putting his money in a purse that had holes in it. There was never enough to get by. You couldn't sustain yourself. But he says, since the day you laid the foundation for the temple, that's a picture of saying since the day you drove a stake in the ground and said from this day forward, God is my priority. He said, now, is there any seed left in the granary? What he means by that is, haven't you in anticipation of my blessings, haven't you taken every last seed out of the granary and planted it in the ground? I mean, they took everything they had and went out and planted the harvest because now, with the promise of God, they're living in anticipation of some tremendous result because God has now shown pleasure that they're pursuing Him first and He's playing out in their lives what Jesus will tell us 500 years later in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first 
the kingdom, the priorities of God, and then He'll give you all these other things that you need. He says, I want you to think about it. I want you to pay attention to it. Remember, before your decision to follow me, how things were, and now that you're following me, the fruit, the, the olive trees, the fig trees, all, all, all of that hadn't, hadn't blossomed yet. It had, you haven't seen the harvest, but I'm telling you right now, I'm going to bless you. It's a great reminder of God saying, be aware. Don't forget what life was like when you weren't following me faithfully. And then compare the difference of the way your life goes when you do follow me faithfully. Well, the fourth, the fourth sermon in this little book are just in these last, um, the last four verses of chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. It says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Now, let me tell you what he's talking about there. In the first sermon in chapter 1, he said, consider, consider, be careful and consider why you're not content, why you're not satisfied. Recognize the missing element. It is my presence, my, uh, my priority in you. The second sermon, get to work. Don't be afraid. I know you think that, that, that you can't produce anything of any great value or glory. I know you think your temple is, is not what it, what it once was. But I'm telling you, I'm about to shake some things around here. And I'm going to make myself known. And you're going to see my glory in a way you've never experienced in your lifetime. And then he says, I want you to remember what life was like then versus what life is like now. Stay aware. Don't let the enemy slip you up. Pay attention to what happens in your life as you follow me. Then he finishes with this fourth sermon, and, he, and it's a message directly to Zerubbabel. Now let me tell you about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was, in, was, a, was a descendant of kings. He is, it turns out, by the time we get to the, to the New Testament, we find out that Zerubbabel is in the line, the, the genealogy, that leads to Jesus. Now what that means is he is speaking in Haggai to Zerubbabel, who is, he's not king, but he is uh, the governor, he, but he's of royal descent. He's in that line that God will use to, to produce the Messiah. Now if we go all the way back to David, God promised David that his house would rule forever you say well you know there was solomon his son and then there was rehoboam his grandson and and then that that's it no 
what God is what God is outlining throughout the Old Testament is in a real elegant way that I don't really have time to go into right now. In a real eloquent way, um, God produces a Messiah. He 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 comes in in Christ uh, in the in the New Testament in the physical line of descent that passes through Mary, and in the royal line of descent that passes through Joseph. And in Christ, there is this elegant solution in the virgin birth that all of God's promises, even the promises that seem to be contradictory, for example, the promise that says to David, you will rule Israel forever, versus the statements made to Rehoboam that I will remove the authority of your house and take it away from you. Well, how does God make the line of David uh, rule Israel forever and yet take that very authority away from the family of David. Well, he does it in this way where there is a physical descent and there is a parallel royal descent and Zerubbabel is in that line of royal descent. And so in speaking these words to Zerubbabel, this, these last three verses, four verses of, of the book of Haggai are one of the really great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament with Haggai speaking on behalf of God to Zerubbabel who stands on behalf of the Messiah. Now, let's think about it again. If Haggai is the representative of God in this conversation and Zerubbabel himself is not the Messiah but he stands as the representative of the Messiah because of the the royal line that passes through him. Now, read these words again as though God is speaking to the Messiah. I will, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will take you, my servant, and make you like my signet ring, make you the precious mark of my personal authority, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Why does Haggai finish with these verses? It's because this is what the people needed to hear. They've put all this energy and effort into rebuilding the temple. Why did they need a temple? Well, because they needed to be able to make their way into the presence of God. It needed to be a, a central location that the nation could rally around. It was the, it was the site of, of where people would come for their festivals and, and the reimplementation of, the, uh, of the, the regulations of the Old Testament law as they, rebuilt, uh, as they rebuilt Judah. The temple was important for lots of different ways, but what did they really need to understand? What they really needed to hear was the temple's not for our generation. We stand in a heritage that we have received and by our efforts of building this second temple, a heritage that we are handing down because the drama, the story of redemption is continuing to unfold and God is letting us play a part. 
they needed to see the temple not as it fit in their generation. They needed to recognize that they were a part of a drama that would lead to the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. We're 2,500 years after Haggai. But you know, there is an encouraging word for us from God that says, listen, 2020 is not the end of the road for the church. The 21st century is not where Christianity sort of peters out and dies off. We have received a heritage, a legacy that has been handed to us through Zerubbabel, all the way to Christ and from Christ this thing called the church, the bride. And for 2,000 years we have received that. Paul says the gospel was handed to him without blemish and it was his job to hand it to the next generation the same way without blemish. This generation, this year, this season, this is not where Christianity dies This is where we wake up and think the God of armies has made a declaration. And what he is saying to us, the people of Evergreen, the people uh, of, of Christianity in this generation, I'm going to do some shaking. I'm going to overthrow some thrones. I'm going to, I'm going to mess up uh, some political powers. And you, because I have chosen you, you are going to see my purposes unfold until I decide that it's over. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years in this country, but I do know this. We're called to take inventory of our priorities. We're called to work hard at the priorities that God has given us. We're told to be pure in our walk with Him. And all of that leads to this confidence, this unshakable certainty that whether we see it or not, we will eventually see it someday because the cause of Christ passing from those who went before us through us to those who come after us, we win Haggai two brief little chapters but an awesome reminder that there is nothing in 2020 to drive us to despair because God is God and he is for us just like he was for them Yahweh the God of armies God bless you.